Let us pray. Almighty God, Lord over all, God of love, God of light, God of justice, we raise Your banner over the nations that all peoples might be drawn to the beauty of Your glory. You are the God of cosmic righteousness who promises to make everything right. You are the God who has overcome death because Your love is greater than death. Your blessing overcomes curse. Your light drives out darkness. Shine Your light on us today. Shower us with mercy. Give us Your gifts. Wash us and we will be clean. Set the table and prepare the feast for us in the midst of our enemies. Speak words of comfort and mercy and truth to us. Conquer the world with Your invincible grace. O God, we give You thanks and praise. The Lord of our salvation, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Amen. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis famously made the observation that 100% of us will die. Right? We're all going to die, aren't we? We're all going to die and we all are going to lose people whom we love. We're all going to die and we're all going to see people close to us uh, go through death. Well, in this text, in John 11, John presents us with a powerful account of Jesus encountering death. We get to see what it looks like for Jesus to come face to face with death. And what he does here informs both how we go through the experience of death, of death of loved ones, how we can think of our own death, and it informs how we live in the light of the reality of the resurrection. John begins by introducing us to three members of this family from the village of Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We see Mary and Martha elsewhere in the Gospels. They're familiar characters to us. We're given a glimpse into their lives and the personalities of these disciples of Christ, especially in Luke 10, where the sisters host Jesus in their home. And, of course, that's a story that's well known to us. We see the different personalities of these sisters and how the personalities of the disciples of Christ play into how they serve Him, and Jesus speaks to those different tendencies and personalities in the sisters. But these were these were special friends of Jesus. We get the idea throughout the Gospels that these were his, his close friends. These weren't simply disciples that he encountered once in a while. These, these were people who counted themselves among the friends of Christ. These were people who could send to Jesus a message that he whom you love is ill. And they knew that if, if Jesus got this message from Mary and Martha, that he knew who they were talking about because these are his, his close friends. But it's also important for us to remember that this is a real family. This is a, a real family that goes through a real trial that all of us go through, that all families face. This family experiences the sting of death, the confusion of prayer that seems to go unanswered, and they experience unexpected joy. So this is a family that's a family like yours, a family like all, all of ours. And how Jesus enters into their situation is instructive for us concerning how, how God enters into our situations, how God enters into our grief and pain and suffering. John's audience and we ourselves are meant to identify with Mary and Martha and with Lazarus. We can identify with their pain, with their confusion, uh, with their grief, 
as we go through as we go through life, these things are going to be uh, more familiar to us than than we would sometimes like. And the action of, of this, the action of Jesus in this story, is meant to show us what's going on in our own lives, where God is in our own trials, in our own grief and suffering. So this this narrative shows us how God relates to us in our suffering and our grief, but it also shows us what it's like to live in union with the resurrected Lord. The sign that Jesus performs displays the reality that we as Christians, as as disciples of Christ, live in. This sign, the resurrection of Lazarus, is about what it's like to live in the reality of the resurrection. So there are two main ideas we're going to be uh, picking up from this text. How God interacts with us, how God relates to us in our suffering and trials, and what it means for us to live in union with the resurrected Lord. Well, this family is going through a trial. They're going through a real uh, trial, but it's also a step in John's gospel leading towards the end that that has been uh, that has been uh, foreboding for Jesus throughout the gospel. Jesus talks about his hour throughout John's gospel, his hour that's coming, the approaching hour. It's, it's talked about as the hour of his glory. It's the hour of his ascent. Uh, it's the hour of the cross. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus knows that this hour is coming. And this story here is a step towards that end. We will see how how Jesus' interaction with the sisters and with Lazarus moves him along closer to the cross. Well, these sisters of Lazarus, Jesus, sorry, John introduces us uh, to the story. These sisters, Mary and Martha, sending a message to Jesus. They send to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Right, their brother is ill. Their, their brother and the friend of Jesus. They send this message to Jesus. And as, as we said, uh, this family was so close that, that they could send a message. Uh, and as it's presented by John, all it says here is, he whom you love is ill. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is ill. And implied in this message is a request for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. This isn't simply updating Jesus on, on how they're doing. Uh, this, there, maybe there's more to the message than we, than, uh, than John tells us, but what we have here is simply a message, he whom you love is ill, and there's an assumption in this message that if Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, Jesus is going to take some action here. Jesus is going to come. That's, that's their hope. That's their prayer. Right? The, the sisters send this message to Jesus knowing that Jesus loves them. Jesus loves Mary and Martha, and he loves Lazarus. And if Lazarus is ill, then surely Jesus is going to come and heal him. All right, we can see this in the later on in, in this in this text that implied in their uh, in their response when they do finally see Jesus that they had hoped this was the implication of their message. They had hoped that he would come. Both sisters, when they first see Jesus, tell him, "Lord, if you had come." then Lazarus wouldn't have died. Right? They send this message thinking surely that Jesus is going to come and heal their brother. He's healed people before. And this isn't just some sick person that he's encountering on his way. This is his friend. Well, in verse 4, we hear Jesus' response. He receives their message. And he says, this sickness does not lead to death. Right? That's what, that's what they're hoping for, right? They're hoping that Jesus is going to come and and heal him so that he doesn't die. They're, they're worried he's going to die, but Jesus says this sickness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Jesus gets this message and he wants, he wants those around him to know the outcome of this whole situation is not going to be death winning the victory. Death is not going to have the victory in Lazarus' sickness. But what does this mean for Lazarus? Does that mean Jesus is about to get on the road and go save him? No, it, no, it, it doesn't. That's not what, that's not what Jesus has in mind. But he says this, this sickness is going to lead to the glory of God so the Son of God may be glorified through it. God can use the suffering of His disciples for good. Uh, God can use the suffering of, of His disciples for His glory. We know that, right? We know that, that God works all things together for, for good uh, for those who love Him. And we know that as we go through trials, as we go through uh, difficulty and suffering, uh, a, a disciple of Christ remaining faithful and persevering through trials brings glory to God. But the glory that Jesus has in mind here is, isn't simply, he's not simply making a vague statement about anyone going through a trial, although we'll see that it has implications for that. Jesus has a, a particular glory in mind here. Throughout John's Gospel, as we said, this glorification of Jesus, the uh, Son of God being glorified, refers to Jesus' ascent to the Father. And through John's Gospel, Jesus' ascent takes the form of Jesus being raised on the cross. The cross for John is the first step in Jesus' ascent, his glorification to the Father. So this, this situation with Lazarus is going to lead to the Son of God being glorified. And in particular, what Jesus has, what Jesus means here is that Lazarus' situation here is going to lead to him being glorified on the cross. This episode with Lazarus will end with Jesus provoking the chief priests and Pharisees in their, to further their plot to kill him. Right? If we continued reading in, in John 11, we would see that some believed after, after they saw this sign, right? Some believed in Jesus, but then others were, were angered by this, right? They, they were worried about what would happen if word spread that, that Jesus was going around raising the dead. So what did they do? You know, we, we've got to, we've got to kill him, right? We've got to do something about this. This situation with Lazarus is going to, lead directly to Jesus' cross. Jesus is going to be glorified through that, through this situation. But the glory that he's talking about is the glory of his cross. So the death and resurrection of Lazarus is for the, the glory of Christ, specifically because it leads to his cross. Our suffering, our suffering that we go through in life glorifies God in a similar way, right? As we suffer and as we grieve, we take up our own cross in our discipleship. We take up our own cross to follow Jesus. And as we do so, we point to the one who laid down his life for his friends. Right? Our, our suffering leads to the glory of God. Our suffering leads to the glory of the Son of God. But it's not simply a vague kind of, you know, somehow through this, God is going to be glorified. We can trust and cling to that promise that our suffering is going to lead to the glory of God because we lay down our lives just as our as our Savior laid down His life for us. And we can thus point to the crucified and risen Lord. So Mary and Martha prayed. Right? They, they asked Jesus to come. They sent their message pleading with Him to come and heal their brother. But it didn't happen. right? Jesus sends no return message that we know of. And in fact, He waits two days longer before going to them. 
And in the meantime, what's what's going on? In the meantime, Lazarus' condition gets worse. Lazarus dies. And what are Mary and Martha left with? And we can we can imagine what's going through their minds, what's going through their hearts. We can imagine the doubts and questions that go through their minds as they as they sit there and wait, not hearing back, not not seeing Jesus come to save their brother. Does Jesus really care? You know, they, they've seen him and heard heard of him healing people before, right? And now Lazarus, their friend, is sick and, and he's let him die. Does does Jesus really is he as powerful as we thought he was, they might be wondering? Or maybe they think that we we thought that we had this close friendship with Jesus. Maybe we overestimated how how much he cared for us. Maybe we overestimated this special relationship that he had with us. Was Lazarus really the one whom Jesus loved after all, as, as they said, or is this family insignificant to them? Right? We, we can imagine the kinds of doubts and questions that are going through their minds, uh, and, and it might be easy for us to imagine that because some of us have been there. Right? How often are we there when, when we've, we've prayed, we ask God for something, and we don't get the answer that we hoped for? We don't get the answer that we wanted. We pray for a loved one to be healed. We pray for an injustice to end for a situation to improve, and we don't get the answer that we wanted. Right? We, we know in faith that God is, is our good Father and He cares for us, but then we pray to Him and, and we, we don't see what, what we ask for granted to us. Right? Your loved one dies. The, the wicked seem to prosper. You get overlooked for, for a, a promotion that you've been working hard for and praying hard for. And where is Jesus in this? Right? These, these same doubts and questions might go through our own minds. Does he really care? Does he, does he really care as much as we thought he did about us? Is he really as, as powerful as we, as we thought that he was? Now, these are the doubts that go through our own minds, and these are surely the same doubts that went through the minds of Mary and Martha as they waited, as they saw their brother die. But in the meantime, Jesus is acting. Right, Jesus is acting in response to their prayer. And what he does here is perfectly consistent with his love for his friends. And it's perfectly consistent with his divine wisdom. Mary and Martha looked on their situation. And, and we can understand the, what, what they thought would be the best thing to happen for their brother and for, for their family is to see Lazarus healed. Now their, their brother is, is, Sick, close to death, what's the best possible thing that could happen? Well, our friend Jesus, the Christ, we've seen him heal people. We know, you know, the best thing that could happen is for him to come heal Lazarus. But they don't have the eyes of Christ yet. They don't, they don't understand things through the wisdom of God. Jesus is acting in his divine wisdom and love for his disciples. And we see here his action. In verse 7, he tells his disciples after waiting, let us go to Judea again. So Jesus goes. Jesus sets out on the road despite the threat from the Jews that he knows is waiting for him and despite his disciples' warning. Are there not twelve hours in the day, he says? Jesus' hour is coming. His hour of, of his crucifixion is coming. And he has to move towards that end. right? But, but until then, he has work to do. He knows, in fact, that when he goes to Bethany... What he's going to do there is going to lead to this hour, to this hour of his crucifixion. The disciples are, are speaking in ignorance here when they, uh, when they worry or, or bring these objections. 
Uh, but consider what they say here. I think there's deeper meaning to the disciples' words than they realize. Jesus tells them Lazarus has fallen asleep. Lazarus has, has fallen asleep. And, and they say, Lord, if Lazarus has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Right? They, they don't understand fully what Jesus is, is saying here. And yet it's true. Right? Lazarus has fallen asleep in the sense that Jesus is talking about. Lazarus has died. Jesus, Jesus makes it explicit for them. But they don't understand, so Jesus tells them uh, plain, Lazarus has died. But it's true, if, if Lazarus has fallen asleep, as Jesus is speaking of, he will recover. Because the one who's the resurrection and the life is coming to him. And so too will we recover, right? We're going to fall asleep. We're going to die. Uh, our loved ones someday are going to die. But we will recover. We'll fall asleep in the sense that Jesus speaks of. But under the reign of Christ, death is no more than that. Death is no more than a sleep for us because it's not going to have the victory, as Jesus says. The sickness does not lead to death. Let us go that we may die with him, Thomas tells Jesus, or tells his, his uh, companions. Let us go also that we may die with him. They say, Jesus isn't listening to our warnings. We know that there's danger waiting for him. So let's, you know, let's go that we may die with him. We don't know what kind of tone this was set in. Maybe this is, maybe he's you know, being a little bit overly dramatic. Maybe he's being cynical here, um, gloomy. And yet it's, and yet it's true. Jesus is going to his death. Jesus is going to, uh, play into the hands of his enemies here. Jesus goes to his death just as the disciples warned. And in his death, we die as well, right? Paul tells us in Romans 6, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall surely be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Jesus is going to go endure death for the sake of His friends, for the sake of His disciples. And in Him, we, we die as well. But in Him, we live again. So for Mary and Martha, when Jesus does finally arrive, it looks like He's getting there all too late. Right? They prayed that Jesus would come heal their brother. But when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days, they tell him. Their prayer has seemingly gone unanswered. But Jesus comes, and he comes bringing an answer to their prayer. It's not the answer they hoped for. It's not the answer they wanted. But when we come to God and, and pray, we know that he's going to answer our prayer. And sometimes he gives us exactly what we ask for. Sometimes he gives us something better than what we ask for that we can't even imagine, right? Mary and Martha prayed for what they thought was best. And that's good that they did so. But Jesus knew what was really best for them. Jesus gave them something greater than what they asked for. Jesus comes and he speaks to Martha, saying, your brother will rise again. He tells, he tells Martha that he has authority over life and death. He has life in himself, he says. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in, in John 5, Jesus says, Therefore, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. And He continues a few verses later, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, He tells Martha. When Jesus comes, He comes bringing life with Him. We heard Numbers 19 read earlier. And under Adam, under, under the Old Covenant, death reigned, right? Death reigned and death spread. 
According to Numbers 19, anyone who touches a dead body is, clean, is unclean seven days. Anyone in the same tent where a, a, where a body, where someone dies, is unclean seven days. Any open vessel in that room is unclean. And if you're in the field and you see a dead body, what should, you know, what should you do as a good citizen there? You should bury that body, right? But if you do what you're supposed to do, if you do what's expected of you, you're unclean seven days, right? There's, there's no way out of it. If you're an Israelite going through, just going through life, you're going to contract somehow, at some point, the uncleanness of death. Right? It's contagious. It spreads. Death reigns under Adam. And if you contract that uncleanness, you better go through the proper cleansing. You better become clean. If you don't, then you're cut off from the assembly of God's people. You've defiled the sanctuary of Yahweh, we're told. Right? You're, you're going to become unclean through no fault of your own, no sin of your own at some point, and God provides cleansing. But, but the reality is, under the old covenant, under Adam, death spreads, death reigns. You, you come in contact with death, and that gets on you somehow. That, that uncleanness spreads to you. But here Jesus comes, and we see Jesus throughout the Gospels coming in contact with those who are unclean in various ways. And does Jesus become unclean? Does he have to go through these cleansings? No, and when Jesus comes, he demands that the tomb be opened, even though he's warned this man's been dead for four days and there's going to be a stench, right? We're, we're given real-life details here. This, this is a reality that, that's, that, uh, that they're worried about. Uh, Jesus comes here and he demands the tomb be opened, ignoring the warnings about the stench. He comes in contact with death. And the dead live, right? Death does not spread to Jesus. Rather, he spreads life to those who are under the reign of death. So this is a great reversal here. The curse of death doesn't reign over Jesus. Rather, Jesus has life in himself, as he says. So Jesus comes and he comes bringing life. But it's not just the resurrection at the last day that he's talking about, right? Martha knows about this. She tells Jesus she believes that that Lazarus will rise again on the last day. And, you know, surely that was a comfort to her. And that's a comfort to all of us. That we, we lose someone we love, and we're comforted by the fact that we know that on the last day, Jesus will raise the dead to glorified life, just as he was raised in his resurrection. But that's not the resurrection, that's, that's not the only aspect of the resurrection he's talking about here when he speaks to Martha. He comes to bring the reality of the future resurrection to bear now, the future breaks into the present for Lazarus. And the future resurrection breaks into the present for us as well. The resurrection of Lazarus doesn't simply point ahead to his resurrection on the last day or the, or the future resurrection of our loved ones. Right? Martha knew it was coming and she was comforted by that. She knew that, he would be, that she would see him again. But Jesus comes to bring the resurrection to bear on reality now. Jesus comes bringing resurrection and life. God spoke the world into beginning, into being in Genesis, and now Jesus speaks, and he speaks into being a new world, a new creation. He speaks, and those who hear will live. Jesus, the risen Lord, brings his resurrection to bear now on our present reality. The present life that we live is a resurrection life. Paul tells us this in Romans 6 again. He says, Do you know... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
Right? We're baptized into Jesus in His death on the cross, and we're raised with Him in His resurrection. But Paul doesn't simply say here that just as Jesus was baptized, just as uh, Jesus died on the cross, so we're baptized into His death, and then just as He was raised, so we will be on the last day. Right? Even though that's true, right? Then that's that's an important truth. It's a truth that comforts us. Paul speaks of that elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see him bringing the good news of the future resurrection. But in this context, what Paul's concerned about is how we're living right now. Right? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? These are the questions that, that Paul is saying the resurrection answers. Paul wants us to know that the resurrection bears on us now. Right? Why shouldn't you continue in sin? Why shouldn't you continue living as though you're under the reign of death? It's because you've been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. So you're a new creature. You're, you're a new creature and you're a new creature now. You don't simply have to wait to participate in the resurrection of Jesus until the last day. Right? You, you are Lazarus. You're Lazarus walking out of the tomb. You're Lazarus having those grave clothes taken off of you. Jesus speaks to the sin and death that reigned over us. The same words that he speaks concerning Lazarus. Unbind him. Let him go. Right? We're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And in his resurrection, we are unbound from the chains of death. That phrase, unbind him, is significant to the narrative of John's Gospel. The word for binding occurs here, and then it occurs three other times in the Gospel of John. Lazarus emerges from the grave. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and he's unbound from his grave, from his grave clothes. But then later in chapter 18, the Romans are going to arrest and bind Jesus, and that same word is used. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas, and he sends him to be bound. And then Jesus later is bound in his own grave clothes. Right? Jesus is bound in linen wrappings at his death in chapter 19. So Jesus comes and he has Lazarus unbound only to set in motion by this action his future binding in death, right? Jesus comes to unbind Lazarus, and he comes to take on those same bindings. Uh, symbolically, we could think of it as the same bindings. Jesus takes those on himself, even as he's unbinding Lazarus. Lazarus is a picture for us of Israel, or, and, uh, and in being a picture of Israel, a picture of, of all of humanity. Jesus is going to take on himself the binds of death, so that we might be unbound and freed from death's reins. Jesus comes to loose us from the bonds of death, and in so doing, he, he takes on himself those bindings and frees us from death. But we're all going to die, as we said. We're all going to die someday, and we all are going to lose loved ones. We've all lost loved ones, or, or someday will. And to us, those who are in Christ, Jesus speaks these same words that he spoke concerning Lazarus. This sickness is not, does not lead to death. Right? We're going to be touched by death some way or another, but death is not going to have the final victory for us. Jesus calls us out from the tomb. Jesus moves that stone of the tomb and he unbinds us from the reign of death. Yes, we're, we're all going to die, but Jesus in his resurrection removes the sting of death. He removes the the badness, in a way, of death, right? We, we are now simply left to pass through death as a, as a sleep, as Jesus speaks of it. And as we endure loss and trial and pain, we can hear the words that Jesus spoke to Martha, spoken over us. Your brother will rise again. 
your friend, your, your father, your mother, those whom you lose to death, those who die in the Lord will rise again. Right? Jesus wasn't exclusively speaking of the future resurrection, but that does, this text does show us that that's a comfort to us that's coming. Those we lose in the Lord will rise again. We can cling to that promise. Not only do we hear the words that he spoke to Martha, but we can know that just as Jesus came to be with Mary as well, Jesus enters into our grief and he, he weeps with us in our grief. It's a comfort for us to simply know that if Jesus doesn't go through his, his life in the Gospels untouched by the grief of death, Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is among his friends here and, and we see him coming to, to see Mary and Martha, and coming to where Lazarus is buried. And, and it's, it's kind of uh, unclear here as we read what, what sets off his weeping. Jesus weeps here over the death of Lazarus. And we're told here, He said to them, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Right, simply, simply being told to come and see where Lazarus is laid brings on weeping for Jesus, right? And I think that we can pass over that but, but that this is our, you know real human emotions that we're being shown here. When when we go through grief, sometimes we don't know what what sets off tears, what sets off weeping. What uh, you know, you might be thinking, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right, going through. You know, whether if you're at a funeral, whatever the situation, and then all of a sudden you see someone who you haven't seen in a long time, who had a close relationship with you, and and it, it just sets something off. And maybe it's something similar going on for Jesus, simply being told, "Come and see." where your friend is buried. Even though Jesus reigns over death, even though Jesus knows that in just a moment he's going to raise Lazarus, Jesus is touched by the grief of his friends, and Jesus goes through grief himself. Jesus enters into the grief of his disciples. And I think we can we can assume that the same is true for us. right? We, we go through, through grief, and I think a lot of times we have in our minds that you know, God is sovereign over this, we, and we can cling to that. We, we know God knows what's going on and is leading and is uh, working this situation out, and we have in mind simply a sovereign, wise God who is looking down and, 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 and is leading us through it, but we need to keep in mind that as we grieve and as we weep, Jesus is weeping with us. Jesus isn't simply reigning as, a, as the sovereign king who's untouched by what's going on by those below. Jesus enters into our grief with us. And he weeps with us. He goes through our, our grief, leading us through trials and pain, through death. And it works for his glory and for our good. Right? We can trust and cling to this. Just as Jesus said concerning Lazarus, this, this sickness isn't going to lead to death ultimately, but it's going to work for the glory of the Son of God. We know too that, that for, for us in our trials, it's going to lead to the glory of God, and it's going to lead to our own good. John John wants us to know at the outset of the Gospel, Mary is the same Mary who is going to anoint Jesus with oil, who's going to wipe his feet with her hair. But that hasn't happened yet in, in John's Gospel. That's coming in the next chapter. Why does John Why does John tell us this bit of information when it's something that, you know, if we're simply reading for the first time, wouldn't really be relevant to us because you know, that, that's not a point of reference yet. It hasn't happened until, until the next chapter. Well, I think John wants us to know 
Jesus, or rather Mary, is, is going to be uh, performing this, this profound act of worship before Jesus. She's going to anoint him with ointment. She's going to wipe his feet with her hair. But Mary is not ready to do that. Mary is not ready to, to do this act of worship yet until she's already anointed his feet with her tears, as we see when Jesus comes to her. She lays down at his feet and weeps. For Mary, it's not, it's not before she's, she's anointed Jesus' feet with her tears that she's ready to anoint him with oil. So death transforms us. And grief transforms us. It transforms Mary. Since the fall, death has been a curse, right? Death is, has been a curse that reigns over us. Death spreads, as we saw in Numbers. Death spreads under Adam, and it binds us. Death is a chain that, that binds us. But in the resurrection, Jesus has loosed those chains of death. Jesus has taken off those bonds of death. And now God uses death for the good of His servants. God uses death to transform us. God uses our suffering and our trials to transform us to the point where we too, like, like Mary, after having anointed His feet with our tears, can now come before Him in worship as transformed people, as as disciples who have been transformed further into the image of Christ. So we're all going to die. We're all, we're all going to see this uh, death come enter into our lives in some way or another with uh, death of loved ones and our, our own death eventually. Even Lazarus, you know, even Lazarus had to go through it again. You can imagine Lazarus going through, you know, who knows how, how long later, you know, what, what kind of thoughts went through his mind as he realized, I've got to do this again. You know, I've got to, I thought that Jesus fixed this. You know, but Lazarus, even, even Lazarus had to go through death again. But Jesus wasn't going to allow Lazarus to go through death until Jesus had reversed the curse of death in his own resurrection. And for us, we go through death, we go through suffering and trials post-resurrection, right? And that, that changes the reality of death for us. Death is no longer reigning over us. We've been unbound. And yeah, it, it hurts when we go through death still, right? It hurts when we go through trials and loss. But we know that Jesus goes with us. We know that Jesus is there weeping with us as He was with His friends. And we know that the reality of the resurrection transforms death from an enemy to a sort of friend. Right? Death is uh, leads to transformation for the disciples of Christ. It's painful, but it's for, our it's for the glory of God and it's for our own good as we are transformed into the image of Christ. We are transformed into those who can bear fruit, producing, uh, producing fruit for the kingdom of Christ. So death is no longer your master. Now weep. Weep when we see death, right? Weep when we encounter death. Weep when we are going through trials with those that we love. Weep when we see people go through loss, just as Jesus weeps with his friends. But know that we've been unbound from the chains of death. Death no longer reigns. So we're called to live in reality of the resurrection. We are called to live as those who are freed from death, walking in the newness of life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that through the death and resurrection of your Son, you have loosed the bonds of death for us. Thank you that as you raise Lazarus from the dead, so you raise us to new life. And we thank you that you go through grief and trials and suffering with us 
bringing us comfort and transforming us further into the image of your Son. Amen.